rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Welcome to episode 186 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode I'm going to continue my run through season three of the Salkine produced Adventures of Superboy television series, which ran in syndication from 1988 until 1992. And in this episode, I'll be covering episodes nine and ten of season three, The Test of Time and Mindscape. Two episodes I remember fairly well from my time watching the show as a kid. I believe. Uh, like uh, Road's Not Taken a couple weeks ago, I had recorded both of these episodes on TV. I don't remember exactly why I recorded these two, why I chose to record them, but I did. So these are two episodes that I know quite well and remembered uh, almost all of the details when I when I watched the episode. But before I get into the business of this week's episode, I have feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 175, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Of these two episodes, I like Superman is better, mainly for the appearance of Red Kryptonite. Although the quote-unquote rules of Red K aren't, weren't clearly delineated here, there does seem to be at least one difference from the comic book version, at least during the Silver and Bronze Ages. It seems that the effects don't necessarily have a time limit, 48 hours in the comics of the time, but are counteracted by a second exposure. I can live with that, since Red K has been treated different ways on TV and even later comic book versions than earlier in the comics. It's also unclear if each individual piece of Red K would affect Superboy differently, or if, once a given piece affected him, he would be immune to that piece in the future. I guess we'll find out if it makes a return appearance in a future episode. Michael Callan, as you notice, really seems to enjoy playing with his ham setting turned up to 11, Metallo, and that makes this episode pretty fun to watch, and I look forward to any return appearances in the role. Yellow Perry's Spell of Doom was, for me, the weaker episode, with the relatively forgettable character of Yellow Perry, who first appeared in the comics, The New Adventures of Superboy, number 34, cover dated October 1982, and, for my money, was pretty forgettable then, too. For those wondering, a Perry is a figure from Persian mythology, a supernatural, mischievous being, often appearing in the form of a beautiful woman. I am looking forward to your next episode in the hopes that Run Dracula Run might elevate the supernatural storylines a bit. Live long and prosper. Dave McElvenny. Well, as always, Dave, thank you for writing in. As far as the two episodes I covered in episode 175, I, too, liked Super Menace better for the appearance of Red Kryptonite and for Michael Callan with his ham setting turned up to 11. But I also liked the evil Superboy played by Gerard Christopher, who also had his ham setting turned up to 11. So, and, you know, you watch the stuff with Gerard Christopher and uh, Michael Callan teaming up, and it, and it just looks like both actors are having a lot of fun, and it comes through in the performance, which is what I really uh, liked about this episode. I don't know if this is something I heard before or if it's something I'm making up right now, but I heard, and if I heard it somewhere, it was probably on uh, Sam Rizzo's Superboy Legacy podcast. If you're not listening to, you uh, definitely should be. 
Sam has an awesome collection of Superboy memorabilia from this show. And he's also met many, if not all, of the main cast. He um, recently, a few, maybe a month or so ago, as of this recording, had an interview with uh, Michael Mano, who played Leo in, a few, in the Lex Luthor first season episodes. And I believe he said he's got some other ones coming up, uh, maybe, of uh, other cast members, including uh, Gerard Christopher. So if I heard this, it's probably where I did because Sam has spoken to Gerard in the past. And I believe he said that Gerard relayed to him that he really enjoyed playing the alternate Superboys. And it comes through in the performance here. And as far as the uh, delineated rules about Red Kryptonite, you know, Dave, being I think you expect too much sometimes. Especially being that this would be Superboy's first appearance to Red Kryptonite, he would kind of need to learn those rules after first exposure. Now, I'm trying to remember the episode. I mean, it was a while, a while ago, so I don't really remember the details. But I know in this, it wasn't counteracted by a second exposure. I almost want to say a second exposure here renewed the effect, which is something that we're going to see also... Uh, when he's exposed to uh, Red Kryptonite and Lois and Clark. The one thing I actually do like about Red Kryptonite in Lois and Clark is that each time it shows up, it does affect him differently. And as far as a return appearance of Red Kryptonite in the future, despite the uh, ending shot of Michael Callan kind of hugging the piece of Red Kryptonite, I have a pretty decent memory of every episode that from here to the rest of the series. And I don't believe it makes a return appearance. So I guess we'll never know. Now, as far as Yellow Perry Spell of Doom, to say that was the weaker of the two episodes was uh, really an understatement as it was a forgettable episode. And uh, Yellow Perry appeared in the comics and he said that was a pretty forgettable then too. And uh, well, I guess not if somebody remembered to bring Yellow Perry back uh, for this episode. And... Thank you for that little bit about the Perry being a figure from Persian mythology, being that supernatural mischievous being, often appearing in the form of a beautiful woman, which is basically what she was in this episode. So that was at least accurate. The rest of it I could have done without. And as far as a run Dracula run, no sense telling you this now, Dave, 10 weeks later, but you did wonder if Byron Shelley was coming back. Well, I look forward to seeing what you're going to say about run Dracula run. So that's that. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. You want to write in manascreen at gmail.com. I have one other piece of feedback to uh, address. This was uh, in the Man of Screen uh, podcast group on Facebook. This is by, by Matthew Cody, who recently joined the group. So welcome. And uh, actually, it seems as though I've approved a bunch of our requests to join the Facebook group in the past uh, month or so. So welcome to all of you who have uh, recently joined, at least as of this recording on October 19th. And uh, Matthew uh, writes in his bit of feedback here, either referring to the episode, I don't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but it was, uh, I should have written that down. I only took the comment. But it was the episode in which I discussed the invisible people and kryptonite kills. And Matthew wrote, this was the first episode of your show that I've heard, and I just wanted to give a spirited defense of Sonny Schroyer's acting. He has some serious range, as his character is the opposite of Deputy Enno Strait. Well, thank you, uh, Matthew, for your uh, comment. I also, I did reply to you on uh, the Facebook page after I saw this. I had to, it took me a minute, I had to look up Sonny Schroyer because I didn't remember him off the top of my head at that point. But uh, as far as his acting goes, you know, he was fine. And I don't recall having seen anything else with him in it. So, I mean, look, he's an actor. He's playing the role the way the director asked him to. So it is what it is. It's a little cartoony. The way he played the role was a little cartoony for my taste, but that was somebody's choice. 
and I'm not going to uh, fault him or applaud him for that. It is what it is. You know, sometimes uh, actors get on a silly little syndicated show like this and uh, and ham it up just for uh, because the show is just an, an, an easy paycheck, you know. Especially this was a season one episode, so, you know, nobody really knew what this show was going to be at that time. So I'm sure Sonny, Sonny Schroyer's uh, performance as uh, the real estate mogul, man, Mr. Manfred, was um, a choice to ham it up the way he did. It was just, you know, too cartoony for me. That's all. So. Thank you, Matthew, for uh, writing in, and please feel free to write in on uh, anything else that you might see or observe. Welcome aboard, and like I said, welcome to everybody else who I've approved to the group in the past you know, month or so. So, right now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and when I come back, the test of time. Hang around, folks. <laughs> podcast network is a collection of super friends plus shag so what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends it's for all mankind a super friends podcast a read-through show about the classic dc comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises hosted by me rob kelly and a rotating group of my super friends coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it all looks good to me all right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start this episode off with The Test of Time. Original broadcast date was December 1st, 1990, directed by David Grossman and directed by David Gerald, who is probably most famous for writing the original Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Troubles. He also did an uncredited rewrite on I, Mud and a season three episode, The Cloud Minders. So he also did a couple of episodes of uh, Star Trek the Animated Series, Land of the Lost, Logan's Run. An episode of Babylon 5, and that's pretty much it, as far as his TV credits go. Guest cast included Eric Conjure as Alien Number 1, Bryce Ward as Alien Number 2, Rex Benson as the robot, and Danny Henneman as the driver, and Mark Caracello as the paperboy, who I'm not remembering. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. On the countryside, Clark and Lana are pursuing a lead on the Willow the Wisp case, as they walk to a wooded area, Lana unwittingly spooks a rattlesnake, but Clark nonchalantly throws it to the side while her back is turned. As they continue to talk... Nothing much going on around here. So why'd you come if you weren't interested? Because I didn't like the idea of you tromping through this kind of countryside by yourself. And you wanted to protect me? Well, it can get pretty wild out here. Clark, it's not that I don't appreciate the thought, but I'm capable of taking care of myself. You know, we probably should be getting back soon. It's already 2.30. I'm not giving up. If we find whatever this thing is, we could rack up some major points back at the Bureau. Clark senses something unusual, and when he x-rays in the open field, he sees a whirling Nimbus coming their way. As it approaches Lana, Clark pushes her out of the way, and he gets swept up into it. When Clark is thrown to the ground, he sees that Lana appears to be frozen in the middle of her fall. Clark freaks out and runs at the town for help. When he gets there, he sees that everything seems to be frozen. People on the sidewalk, cars on the street, nothing is moving. He walks through town and realizes that he's the only one that is moving. When he looks up at a building-mounted clock, he sees that it's 2.30, the same time he left Lana in the field. When he checks the time on his watch, it slowly becomes 2.31. Looking back at the clock, it also slowly becomes 2.31. Clark then determines that everything around him has been slowed down. But his theory is debunked when he sees a helicopter in the sky with its blades slowly turning. Wait a minute. 
If the blades aren't turning fast enough to hold it up, how can... What if it isn't them? What if it's me? They haven't slowed down. I've been sped up. That's why they can't see me or hear me. I'm moving too fast. And what if I can never get back? He continues to walk through town and comes across a car that is speeding and about to hit a motorcycle. Clark moves the motorcycle and puts the helmet on the rider. He then hears a phone ringing in the distance and speed runs to the house from which he heard it. He answers the phone and there is no response. And then he sees a fire going in the fireplace in normal motion. He takes a closer look. The doorways and windows suddenly become sealed with bricks. Then fire shoots out of the fireplace and sets the living room on fire. Clark pulls out the fire and changes into Superboy. He flies out to the street, calling out to whoever is causing these strange occurrences. A pickup truck comes speeding around the corner, and Superboy punches it as it passes by, turning it on its side. The truck then uprights itself and comes after Superboy again. And as another truck approaches from the opposite direction, Superboy x-rays one of the trucks to find out that there's no driver, then jumps into the sky to avoid being sandwiched by them, leaving the trucks to collide and then explode. At a barn outside town, a cube floats into the hands of an alien man, and he and another alien watch a short montage of Superboy's reactions to what just occurred. Nothing seems to affect him. I wonder why he changed his clothing. I don't know. It appears we have a lot more to learn about these beings. Maybe... Maybe we should try somewhere else. No. We're running out of time. In a little while, we're going to be... I said no! This place is perfect. The yellow sun, the mixture of ultraviolet and infrared. Look, we'll all be rejuvenated here. We'll all be killed. You're afraid of him, aren't you? But what about you? What do you mean? You and him. It's personal now, isn't it? Superboy lands where the trucks exploded and sees an old man watching from behind a fence. He comes around the fence and is thrilled to see another moving person. Superboy wants to take him somewhere safe and the man suggests a church. While they talk inside the church, the conversation seems normal as they both open up about their personal feelings. We were married in here. We'd come every Sunday. And the mill closed. And most of the congregation just left town. I still come back now and then. Lots of memories? Yeah. But none of them with any future. There's got to be some way to get out of here. Not for me. It doesn't really matter. Been a long time since anybody noticed I was gone. How about you? Anyone special? Sort of. And you're concerned about her? There are a few things I would have wanted to have told her. She must be important to you. Let's just say the thought of never seeing her again is difficult for me to accept. Whoever's doing this must be after something. But what? <laughs> I think it is quite obvious. What are you doing? I'm killing you! <laughs> what are you? A robot! Who sent you? Why are they trying to kill me? You have been quite lucky, but the test to come 
Will not be so easy. Tess? What kind of Tess? You will never beat us. You will never beat us. No one can. No one can. None of you. None of you. None of you. None of you. None of us. Again, the cube comes floating back to the barn, and the partner of the alien watches what just happened in the church. That was pointless. No, it wasn't. I know exactly what to do with him now. But we can't stay in the acceleration mode much longer. Just a little more time. That's all I need. If we don't make it back home, they won't go ahead with the colonization. Relax. Enjoy the light. Meanwhile, as Superboy cases the skies, the Will-O-Wisp whisks Lana from the field and takes her to the barn. Superboy hears her cries for Clark and crashes into the barn, confronting the two aliens. Superboy! Let her go. We've come a long way for this. The heat, the light. Our planet has almost none anymore. But this one does, and now it's ours. You were the cause of this? Who are you? We are your new master. I wouldn't count on that. I would. We've got her, remember? I said let her go. She's ours. Unless. Unless what? Unless you surrender to us. Tests. Give up, or we'll leave with her. Go ahead. What? You'll never see her again. But that's just something I'll have to live with. But I don't ever give up. None of us do. See how much stronger they've gotten since the last time. You're lying. We've seen you try to protect others. But never to the point of surrender. For us, that's the ultimate humiliation. Please, don't leave me. Nearly out of time. We've got to get out of the acceleration mode. Since their test failed, the two aliens pick a run for it, since they spent too much time in the acceleration mode. Lana is released, and the aliens limp by. How could you do this to me? They were testing me, looking for weaknesses. I'm sorry. Yeah, I... I, I... I figured that out, too. I think they still have Clark. I know you have a weakness. We'll be back for more tests later. Let's go while they've given us the chance. No, you won't. You wanted to test a typical human being to see if you could win a war with us. But you couldn't find any weaknesses. Because there aren't any. We're all like me. Some are even stronger. You're lucky you didn't take Lana! Yeah! Better we shouldn't go back. Not like this. You've killed us. They thought you were a typical human? How did you figure it out? The robot didn't recognize me. He kept saying none of you as if I were typical. Robot. Later. The aliens give up trying to escape their demise and destroy the cube. Superboy takes Lana outside the barn and shields her with his cape as it explodes. This returns everything to normal and a truck nearly hits them. And Superboy pushes Lana out of the way and leaves. Hey, are you okay? I just looked away for a second. It was like he came out of nowhere. What about Superboy? Superboy? All I saw was you. 
That's funny. Lana, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. Me? Well, where were you? You're not gonna believe what just happened. I saw another one of those will-o'-the-wisps. And I went after it. And then I got lost. See, listen, can I give you a folks a lift somewhere or something? Yeah, that, um, we gotta get back to the Bureau. Thanks. My protector. Lana, I can't be everywhere at once. No, I suppose you can't. So, uh, what's this bureau thing? Well, that was quite a loaded synopsis. The one thing about this episode is a lot of the episode is carried by Gerard Christopher by himself. I mean, at least half of it, I would say, as he's just kind of walking through this silent town and trying to figure out what's what's going on. I mean, for a good maybe, you know, eight to ten minutes, he is the only thing moving. And, you know, he does a very good, he does a good job uh, carrying this episode largely with no help. So we start off with Clark and Lana walking through uh, the wilderness searching for his will-o'-the-wisp, and uh, Lana thinks it's a waste of time. Clark is acting uh, the skeptic, at least at first. This has been a colossal waste of time. Nothing like fresh air and a little exercise. Even if we didn't see a whippoorwill or whatever. Willow the wisp. Flickering lights seen mostly at night. I know, Lana. And mostly over marshy ground. Also known as burning swamp gas. This wasn't anywhere near a swamp. It was seen by a reliable witness. And it was in broad daylight. He wants to go back, and uh, they do encounter a rattlesnake. I like this touch of Clark picking up the snake and telling it to shh, like he's going to listen, and then he just chucks it. Hoping to throw it too far. I don't want to see it landed in some guy's coffee. So Clark wants to head back, but she's not giving up because she wants to score, quote-unquote, points at the Bureau. This is, of course, after saying that this was a waste of time, so which is it, Lana? So Clark spots some kind of uh, whirly light thing on the horizon. It's uh, I'm trying to find the right word to describe what this special effect is. It's like, it's supposed to be like reflected light, I guess. But it looks like the snow you would get on a, on an old-fashioned TV that's getting bad reception. So whatever it is, it's uh, too far away for Lana to see without binoculars, and uh, it causes a great deal of windows that approaches. And Clark pushes Lana out of the way, and then he gets uh, spun around himself within the, I guess we'll call it the Will-O-The-Wisp, and uh, he's thrown to the ground. He uh, seems a little dizzy and is confused to see Lana kind of stopped in mid-fall. I'm not even sure if any part of her body is touching the ground. She's just stopped. And, you know, I wonder how they did this. At some point, it's easy to say that they kind of just, you know, stopped the shot. And uh, But Clark is interacting with it. So she's in mid-fall, and Clark has run into town here. No idea how far he ran or why he didn't change it to Superboy right here. But what Clark is finding is pretty eerie. Everyone looks as though they're stopped in mid-act. And I guess this is done with mannequins. And it's uh, still 2.30. And in an interesting note, Clark's watch is slow too, but still moving. And I find that interesting because Clark's watch was caught in the Will-O-The-Wisp as well. So you would almost think the watch would keep time normally. I don't know. Maybe uh, I guess you could no-prize that by saying that the Will-O-The-Wisp only works on life forms. And since... The watch is a machine. It's not affected. I guess we can go with that and move on. 
So Clark thinks everything is going to slow down until he sees the helicopter in the sky where you can see the blades moving, but not fast enough to hold it up in the sky, which tells Clark that they haven't been slowed down. He's been sped up. And to be clear, nothing has happened to everybody else. They are perceiving time as they normally would. Clark is at a point where he is perceiving time much slower. You know, for him, these seconds probably feel like hours, which is why nobody can perceive him. So Clark realizes this is the effect of the Will-O-The-Wisp. And uh, here's an interesting predicament here as Clark uh, walks down the street. He sees this uh, one motorist checking out this girl on the sidewalk. You know, uh, she almost looks as though she's trying to get his attention, but it's just kind of uh, the way she stopped. But you can also see that he's uh, this motorist is blowing the stop sign at 50 miles an hour, and he's about to plow into this motorcyclist looking in the wrong direction. Now, seeing that the uh, motorcyclist is headed uh, for getting launched into orbit, Clark picks up the bike with the motorcyclist on it and moves it out of the car's way. Not far, just, you know, a few feet. So he clears the speeding vehicle. And then he puts a helmet on him. Okay, something that's been bothering me about this moment for decades. And I finally have a chance to bitch about it. Disorient the motorcyclist enough that he that caused him to fall off the bike and possibly hurt himself anyway. I mean, think about it. He's, you know, driving around and without his helmet and his sunglasses on, and he doesn't know about the car that's about to plow into him, which is fine. But what's going to happen is, I don't know how he's going to perceive this, but in a fraction of a second, he's going to be not only in a different spot, but his helmet's going to be on as well, when where it wasn't before. So how is that going to feel to this guy who's going to, I mean, it's all going to happen very fast, but does he get disoriented enough that he loses control of the bike and falls off? Or will he be able to adjust fast enough to the, the new uh, predicament and just wonder how the hell his helmet got on him? I don't know. Something to think about, I guess. So here's something I don't understand. Here is a, how is the phone ringing in a way that Clark can hear it? And then and now that we're thinking about audio for a minute, I mean, you know, we all know how things sound when it's very slow. Shouldn't Clark hear something? Even if it's very long, protracted sounds, I guess that's something that nobody thought about. Maybe I'm the first person to think about that with regards to this episode. I don't know. Maybe time is going to be so fast for Clark that he can't perceive the sounds being made in uh, quote-unquote real time because he's so accelerated. So the phone's ringing. No one's there. Clark, Things are getting spooky, and Clark's getting frustrated. And here's a fire that's moving at normal speed and giving off heat. And then all of a sudden, the house is bricked up, and the house catches fire. So Clark blows out the fire and finally short rips the Superboy. I still don't understand why he didn't change earlier as soon as he realized something was up, but that's beside the point. So here comes the truck at Superboy and he pushes it onto its side and it pushes himself back over. Very cute. And now another truck comes down the street. And I will say this. The show spent a lot of money in this episode as Superboy flies away. The two trucks collide and plow into each other and make a pretty impressive looking explosion. You're going to see another pretty impressive looking explosion later in this episode, so... I will say, some cash was spent on this episode. So now we have two guys here with a floating box. These are our villains and our aliens. And they're watching the action from just now. It looks as though they're studying Superboy. And one of them is fearful and the other is not. Although the fearful one says he's just being careful. We know nothing about them at this point. We'll learn a little bit more the next time we see them. So Superboy now sees someone on the other side of this fence kind of looking at it very warily. And it's this old man who says his name is John and... He's excited to see someone else moving around, and John is awfully feely here with Superboy. I guess he's uh, almost like he's checking him out for someone, 
Or maybe, I guess you can say that the full Superboy, he's checking them to see if he's real. So they go to a church, and uh, John is telling Superboy a story that sounds plausible about getting married in the church, and the mill closing, and people leaving, and their bonding, saying how difficult that for Superboy it would be to not see Lana again if he doesn't get back into uh, real time. And then when Superboy says whoever's doing this is after something, John takes a very fast heel turn and tries shooting Superboy to no effect, of course. Some X-ray vision reveals that he's a robot and uh, working for the aliens. And he warns Superboy of a test to come before short-circuiting and exploding. And another explosion. Well, actually, there's three explosions in this episode. Now, one clue we should have noticed is that John never acknowledged him as Superboy. A normal human being would have known that. And also the none of you thing, which comes into play later. Apparently, the two aliens are on a time crunch. And I kind of wonder how long they were in this accelerated moment. Probably as long as Superboy was. Were they there in that barn in real time until they found somebody to speed up? Was Superboy the first person they tested? He must be because of the way the episode ends. So they need to get home before the people start the colonization. And apparently, the if these guys don't return, they won't colonize the Earth. I guess they'll figure it's too dangerous or something. They need the planet's light and solar energy. Light and heat. They, the first alien is sending an animated Will-o'-the-Wisp at Lana, and she's now accelerated with the aliens, and it's calling for Clark because she's disoriented, and Clark is the uh, last person that she saw. And uh, she's kind of trapped, like almost like hanging on the barn wall. She has no idea where the hell she is, and Superboy comes and demands they let her go. They don't. They want the planet for heat and light, and they have introduced themselves as his new masters because they've got Lana imprisoned. Well, they want Superboy to surrender, and he remembers the robot mentioning a test. Well, the alien threatens to leave with Superboy, and he tells them, eh, go ahead, take her. I don't give a damn. And then he reminds them that he never gives up. Lana is perplexed, and they let her go, and the aliens run off. So Lana is annoyed that Superboy gambled with her life, but since it paid off, and once he explained to them that uh, the aliens were testing him, she kind of plays it off like, yeah, yeah, I knew that all the time. Yeah, sure you did, Lana. So unsuccessful in their uh, machinations, these aliens say they'll be back for more tests later. And uh, Superboy blusters and tells them they won't be back, and that everybody on the Earth is like him. Could you imagine that? Everybody on this planet being like Superboy? And then Lana gets up there, yeah! And says they're running Superboy, and uh, I thought that was funny. A minute, a minute ago, she was annoyed at Superboy, and now she's blustering to aliens. So, unable to go home with their failure, they uh, throw the flying box onto the ground and uh, blow themselves up. One thing that I've always remembered about this episode is, check out Alien 2's face before the box is spiked. His mouth is wide open, and he's just horrified. I am i know nothing about these two actors, so what uh, IMDB described as Alien 1 and Alien 2, I assume uh, Alien 1 is the... Uh, more of the ringleader in Alien 2 with the cautious one. So they blow the barn, and Superboy and Lana are back in normal time, and they almost get running over by a truck because they happen to be in the middle of the street. Superboy pushes Lana out of the way, and Clark comes out of the woods saying he was uh, chasing a will-o'-the-wisp and uh, gets lost. So the pickup driver offers to give them a lift somewhere, and Lana points out they need to get back to the bureau, and uh, this guy's confused. What's this bureau thing? Yeah, well, kind of wonder how far away they are from Capital City. You know, sometimes it's not very far from the city to the sticks. So, I like that episode. Not, it's not really spooky, but it is eerie. I mean, the emptiness and the of the town. It's not even the emptiness. It's just the the lack of movement and all the uh, what we think is frozen people. But I like Superboy having to outwit these aliens that want to colonize the Earth. Probably because they've killed off their own planet. So, it's an episode I remember well, and it's fun. 
And again, kudos to Jara Christopher for pretty, for pretty much carrying this episode by himself. So, that's all I got on that one. Gonna take another break, play a podcast promo. When I come back, Mindscape. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Byrne, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes. i got a question, though. I'm just am curious. Why? Doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? Welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with Mindscape. Original broadcast date was December 8th, 1990. Directed by David Nutter. Written by Mike Carlin, Mick Diavarella, and Andy Helfer. Guest cast include Lex Luger as Superboy Mark II, Judy Clayton as Dr. Stern, Sonia Matfox as Staffer Number 1, Chris Calvert as Staffer Number 2, Rod Ball as The Worker, Jacob Whitkin as The Voice of Jarrell, Kathy Pauling as the voice of Lara, and Cliff O'Neill as the Superboy double. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. Matt invites Clark to happy hour after work, but Jackson gives him an assignment. So he asks Lana, but she's on a call and cannot go either. As Matt walks out, he comes upon a man bringing a strange rock from his construction job. Is this the Bureau of Extra Normal Matters? Yeah, but we're closed. This will only take a minute. It's about this rock we dug up on the site today. And what about it? Well, you're going to think I'm crazy. It's making noises. Noises? What kind of noises? Words? Sentences? Haikus? Hey, I know what I heard. If you're not interested, I'll just take this thing someplace else where they are. Since Jackson's skeptics regarding the rock insult the man, he leaves, but is bumped by someone entering the bureau, sending the rock flying across the room and landing next to a desk. When the rock begins to smoke and crack open, Clark sneaks out into the hall and changes to Superboy. He comes in to look at the rock while he holds it. It breaks open and a slimy blob-like creature jumps out and latches to his neck. Superboy struggles for a moment and goes unconscious on the steps. Some people carry him over to a desk and lay him down. Jackson wants Stern to take a look at the creature and calls out for Clark to go get her. He, his call translates into a dream where Clark wakes up at his desk. It plays out similar to how things went earlier. Jackson's giving him an assignment, the rock being brought in, 
and it flying across the room. Except this time, Clark jumps on top of it and it explodes. He gets up, thinking that he has fooled everyone about his secret, but it's as clear as day. The explosion blasted a hole in his shirt, revealing the S-shield on his chest. You and Clark, you're the same person. Why did you hide it from me? Lana had my reasons. I wanted to protect people. It's too late for that. You don't have to hide it anymore. But I... Why not just be Superboy all the time? I need to be Clark. But Clark, he's such a... I am sorry. I didn't mean that. But Clark, he was only an act, wasn't he? I am Clark. As much as I am Superboy. Sometimes I need to get away from being Superboy. Uh, Kent! <laughs> Superboy? <laughs> I guess we can forget that vaccine, huh? You could just fly the stuff there. <laughs> He's got more important things to do. Like what? Are you kidding? He can do anything. End yeah. pollution. Save the environment. Stop war. Cure disease. Make diamonds. Help the homeless. Anything. No. 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 Then Stern walks in and tells everyone to back off, which reverts back to real life as she observes Superboy. Brainwave activity indicates severe stress. I don't need a monitor to know that. Just look at his eyes. Rems, he's dreaming. Tell you something else, that thing is growing. What about a hospital? Too dangerous to move him, and that thing might contaminate the hospital. Well, we've got to do something. I'm going to try the laser. Stern attempts to use a laser to hurt the creature. Then in another dream, Superboy wakes up, triumphant over the creature, throwing it onto the floor. But something's wrong. Superboy is a robot, and his circuitry is exposed. What? A robot? That's how he got his powers. He wasn't human. I am human. We should have guessed. Who built here? Nobody built me. They're just metal and wires. Lana, I'm alive. You're a robot! I can't be. I have feelings. For you. Don't say that! Lana, please! Your circuits are malfunctioning, Superboy. You know you were good in your day, but it's time for you to be replaced. Replaced? By you? Correct. And my first official act, as the new Superboy, will be to dispose of you. No, I won't let you. He throws Superboy around the office, then pulls the circuits, causing him to malfunction and explode. All that remains 
is his upper torso, still trying to gain Lana's sympathy. In real time, the creature has grown larger and is killing the Boy of Steel. A lifeline has also appeared on the monitor and, the gro- and growing stronger as Superboy gets weaker. Every time Superboy enters a nightmare phase, the creature grows. Now how could that be? I'm not sure. It's not as if the dreams are real. No, but the emotions they cause are real. And emotions generate adrenaline. You're saying it's feeding on his adrenaline? It would explain why it's growing. Doctor, could it be creating the dreams? Trying to frighten him into producing even more adrenaline? Then Superboy enters another dream. Lana? Lana, help me? Lana, please. I can't do it anymore. It's too difficult. talking about everything that has happened to me that's what I'm talking about the times I've been victimized and almost killed it's been all because of you because I loved you I love you but you just don't do you of course then why can't you show me Why can't we just do the simple things that everybody else does? Seems like the only time I ever get to see you is is when you save me. You can lift a mountain and, and fly around the world, but you can't even take me out for dinner or dancing or just to a movie. Do you know how lonely I am? You know why we can't do those things. My enemies, they... That's just an excuse. You're holding back and you always will. Lana, no, I won't. I promise. I won't. It's too late. Too late? You always expected me to wait for you. But for what? When is it ever going to be any different? someone else no he's kind and decent who and he's always been there for me he's tangible who is he i can be with him and my life isn't at risk clark i always loved you she just never realized it but i do now Lana, it's a trick. Don't be jealous. He's not Clark. How do you know? Because I know. Stop it. Tell her you're not Clark. You're going to ruin everything. And when Superboy tries to convince Lana that he's not really Clark, he chokes him and seemingly defeats him in the dream. Superboy dies in real time and the lifeline of the monitor goes flat while the creature is at full strength. While Mac consoles Lana... Superboy has an out-of-body experience. His spirit floats out of the Bureau and over Capital City and through the depths of time. He enters a dark place where his birth parents appear. Who are you? It's been so many years. You were an infant when you left us. We are your parents. 
your true parents. I'm dying, aren't I? Don't be afraid. I'm not ready to die yet. No, it's not your time yet. It wants you to be afraid. Look around you. There's nothing to fear. We'll always be here for you. Just as our parents were here for us. When it's your time, you'll join us all. But not until then. The creature, in full body form, walks from behind the pillar. As Superboy fights the creature, he gains strength in real time, and his lifeline on the monitor returns. He defeats the creature in his out-of-body experience, then wakes up. Throwing the creature, now significantly reduced in size to the floor. With everyone looking on, Superboy takes Lana's hand, and as they are relieved that he's alive. Alright, so this was another episode that was very mem- was very memorable. I mean, that blob-like creature was memorable in its own right. And so this episode starts with Matt trying to find someone to go to happy hour with, but Clark and Lana are both busy. I guess uh, Matt has no other friends at the Bureau. Clark just got an assignment from Jackson uh, having to fax a bunch of stuff. And Lana is talking to someone who claims to have 10 alien babies. So now we got this other guy who comes in with a rock that he says is making noises. After Jackson mocks him for it, the guy leaves, uh, insulted. I probably would do. And then the rock starts, uh, the guy gets hit with the, uh, with the door and the rock flies out of his hand, kind of lands, uh, in between, like, wedge between the floor and the desk and kind of starts smoking, like it's going to hatch or something. So Clark spins into Superboy, and I believe that's the first time uh, we will see Clark change in quite that fashion. You'll see it quite a bit throughout the rest of the show, and Lois and Clark will overdo it in seasons three and four. Kind of reminds me of the nod to the uh, 70s Wonder Woman show where Linda Carter would spin from Diana Prince to Wonder Woman on almost every on every occasion. So Superboy picks up the rock, shuts it with his strength before it shakes, and Creature grabs him by the throat and chokes him out on the Bureau steps. So much for happy hour. Now, one of the things that makes this episode so memorable is this creature that just hatches from this meteorite and starts choking the hell out of Superboy. And Superboy's on the table. Here is a Jackson's going to send Kent to uh, get Dr. Stern. And all of a sudden, Clark wakes up at his desk with Jackson wanting him to send faxes, like in the uh, in the open. So now we're back at the beginning of the episode with the man bringing in the rock. And uh, Clark notices that something is going on, like he's seen this all before. So the rock hits the floor, smokes. And for some reason, in the dream here, Clark jumps on it like a linebacker recovering a fumble. And the explosion blows open his shirt to reveal the Superboy costume beneath. And everyone is shocked. They all kind of stand there looking at him in a big crowd going, Oh, he stands revealed. Lana wants to know why he hit it. And suggests that he be Superboy all the time. And then describes Clark as a geek. Well, not realizing or not caring that she insulted Clark, but Superboy says that he has both identities as much as the other. And now everyone starts teasing him. They've already suggested that he fly the faxes to Washington. Now everybody puts the weight of the world on his shoulders and it overwhelms him. Makes me think of Issue 1 of John Byrne's Man of Steel comic when he revamped the origin in 1986. They all want a piece of me, Pa. And that's kind of what's happening here. So here comes uh, Dr. Stern saying that he needs some air. This is the first of a few times we're going to see this character. However, Clark didn't get her, so I kind of wonder who did. Maybe uh, I'm guessing that when Jackson couldn't find Clark, he just sent someone else. And it's funny that there is no moment of anybody wondering where 
where Clark is at this point. Usually someone is saying, where's Clark? But eh, not here. I guess I'm too worried about Superboy to think about it. So, and honestly, I wonder if Stern's name is a nod to uh, Roger Stern, who is one of the writers of the Superman comics at this time. So this is 1990, so there are three titles. Superman the Man of Steel wouldn't come around for until sometime in 1991, and that would bring Luis Simonson and John Bogdanov. So I'm guessing around this time, Roger Stern is writing action comics. I wouldn't put it past uh, Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer to name Dr. Stern after Roger. So like I said, Dr. Stern is saying that his brain is stressed, he's dreaming, and the creature is growing, and they can't bring him to a hospital for a fear of contamination. But it's okay to uh, just work on him on this desk with everybody crowding around. That's okay, but a medical facility is a non-starter. So basically, this thing is functioning kind of like a Black Mercy. For those of you who remember the uh, very famous Superman story, it's always on, on one of on those uh, great greatest Superman stories ever told. This written by Alan Moore for the man who had everything. I don't know if that was the first appearance of the Black Mercy, but it's definitely the most famous Black Mercy sh- story that I know of. Which and it was uh, redone in Justice League Unlimited, I believe, and Supergirl on CW did a version of it. But however, instead of showing him his ideal life, like in For the Man Who Had Everything. It's showing him nightmare scenarios. And, of course, in this show, unlike the comics, there's no Mongol to follow. So he's dreaming and it's growing. Cern tries a laser, but it doesn't seem like it's doing anything. However, it appears to work, but then we realize we're in another dream as Superboy is now revealed as a robot and everyone is horrified. And Superboy's horrified as well because he doesn't think he's a robot. And here is Lex Luger with his long, flowing blonde hair as the quote-unquote new Superboy. I wonder if the producers picked this particular wrestler on purpose because his name is reminiscent of Lex Luthor and the new Superboy just throws him around and shorts him out and causes him to explode. And for the record, Lex Luger, whose real name is Larry Fole, chose his ring name of Lex Luger because he is a fan of Lex Luthor. So Superboy blows up and it's quite horrifying seeing him in a million pieces uh, lying on the ground. So now uh, that's over. The creature has now grown to cover most of Superboy's right arm. And Lana notices that Superboy is uh, crying. So now there's another lifeline showing up on the monitor. And apparently the monitor is not picking up the creature. And we learn that the creature is killing Superboy by feeding on him. Stern, who, uh, like I mentioned before, was played by uh, Judy Clayton. This is uh, one of her three appearances as Dr. Stern. She's also, we're also going to see her in... uh, Neil and the Beast and Metamorphosis. Neil and the Beast is a season three episode, Metamorphosis season four. She also appeared last season as a lab assistant in Superboy. Rest in peace. I'm guessing that was when she was one of the future people. Stern says that it's feeding off of Superboy's adrenaline, and Matt postulates that the creature is giving him the nightmares to scare him into producing more adrenaline. And now, another dream. He's uh, lying on the table here asking Lana to help him, and uh, she says no because it's too difficult. Lana points out how often he was, she was victimized and almost killed because she knows him and loves him. And I'm sure that's some, something that does weigh on him. And Lana questions why he doesn't do you know, more social activities with her, like dinner, dancing, or movies. And it's a concern that he shares, and he reminds Lana why they can't do those things because of his enemies. And Lana dismisses it as an excuse. So I guess this is scaring him in a new way, trying to play on his fear that he will never find love because of the role he plays as Superboy. So 
His greatest fear is that she'll find someone else, and poof, the someone else is Clark. And this should give Superboy an idea. Maybe he should see Lana as Clark instead of coming up with excuses. It's not something he acts on in this show, but, you know, it is what it is. Superboy knows that it isn't Clark, but he won't tell her the real reason why that's not Clark. So even trying to deny the Clark standing in front of him, he refuses to tell her that he's Clark. And he wants Clark to tell her that that he's not Clark. So not wanting everything ruined, Clark starts to choke Superboy in a scene reminiscent of Superman 3. And the creature's lifeline is growing and Superboy flatlines. I almost wonder if uh, the Clark in the dream is a representation of the creature as it kills Superboy as Clark chokes him in the dream. So Lana is beside herself with grief at this point and not believing that Superboy could possibly be dead. I mean, not only does she not want to lose a loved one, but it's hard to imagine someone as powerful as Superboy dying so easily, you know, basically choked out on uh, on the floor by a green blob that isn't kryptonite. So now Superboy's astral form, or soul, if you will, is leaving his body. They can't perceive him, and he's floating away, up, up, and away. As he ascends, he hears some recollections of the dreams that he had while being choked by the creature. So now Superboy is solid again, and we see a white light, and there is a Jarell and Lara standing in the light here. They are made up to look like Marlon Brando and, and Susanna York, and they tell him not to be afraid of this ugly creature that looks like a cross between Swamp Thing and a giant booger. I wonder if they made it somewhat reminiscent of Swamp Thing as a nod to Alan Moore, who wrote for The Man Who Has Everything, and... They had a very famous run on Swamp Thing. But to me, it just looked like a giant booger, which wants Superboy to be afraid of it. So uh Jor-El and Lara tells him that it's not his time to die and to fight the giant uh, booger monster. They uh, don't say his name, though. They don't tell him his name is Kal-El. They just tell him to fight, that it's not his time, and don't fear the monster. So as they fight, you can see Superboy's lifeline increase, and it's not really much of a fight. Superboy flies into the monster and then throws it into the light. And as soon as that's done, Superboy sits right up. Kal-El has overcome great fear. He can now be a Green Lantern. So, like Neela, this episode took a concept of the Black Mercy and twisted it. Like I said before, instead of creating the victim's perfect life, it created a nightmare scenario in in its attempt to kill Superboy. Black Mercy is normally associated with Mongol, but not here, obviously. But it did come from space, so maybe Mongol sent it. You know, you can believe that if you want. But it was a very good look at the thing Superboy is afraid of. The first nightmare is that he's afraid of people finding out the truth of his dual identity. I'm not sure what the robot dream showed his fear of. Maybe it's this issue of uh, not knowing where he's from or what he truly is that led to that one. And then the one where Lana falls for Clark shows his fear of losing Lana and his fear that he puts her in danger. But come on. Maybe this is the post-crisis fan in me talking, but there's no reason why he can't be with her as Clark. So this was a good episode, a nice study of Superboy and a comic-related concept without it actually being comic-related. It was really the what they could do in 22 minutes. And I really like the touch of adding his parents at the end, even though he doesn't truly know who they are or where he comes from. But they're made up to, to look like Marlon Brando and Susano York, and they're consistent with what we saw of Jorel and Lara in Season 2, as that was taken from his own infant memories. So, you know, two solid episodes this time around. I really enjoyed watching these two, and I enjoyed recording this episode, more so than some others. Next time, we're going to have... Uh, New take on an old concept in Superboy Lost, and then the return of Andy McAllister in special effects. Until then, feedback's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, 
Just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You'll also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.